Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University. Actually, that's a slight lie. I'm coming to you live from lockdown in Sydney. So if you hear any funny noises in the background, that's my uh, three-year-old daughter. I'm, I'm here today joined by Stephen Allen. Steve is a uh, associate professor of history at California State University, Bakersfield. And he's the author of a book that I, I was just telling him I, I read uh, in, in two days, just kind of couldn't put it down. Uh, the title of the book is A History of Boxing in Mexico, Masculinity, Modernity, and Nationalism. And uh, this book was out from University of New Mexico Press in 2017. So welcome, Steve. Yep. Thank you. It's great to be here. Steve, I, I like to start out by just asking people how they became interested in sports, how they became, in your case, kind of a sports historian, and um, how you developed this particular project uh, on boxing in Mexico. Sure, thanks. Um, I would say this project comes out of three interests of mine, which include uh, sports history and Latin America and Mexico specifically. And so, uh, I would say as a growing up, I was always, I grew up in a family that was, my father was a big boxing fan. And so if you follow boxing or anything like that along the way, you figure out pretty quickly that Mexican boxers, Mexican American boxers and fans are an important part of the sport. And so that's something I had growing up as a, you know, as a kid. And then later on, as I got into history, um, actually the first place I uh, traveled outside of the country was to Costa Rica. And eventually I got to Mexico, but Latin America was the first place where I really traveled outside the U S and one of the things I found over time, whether or not I was in Costa Rica or later on, I was working in a migrant education program in New Jersey, um, was that a lot of times, uh, my connections with people from Latin America often centered around sports. And so that was something that just was a commonality, maybe like a language you could have as my Spanish was, you know, improving terrible at the time, but something that you could connect with, with people. And eventually I went to grad school. I was working on my MA at Temple University and my, and I realized that there was a gap in uh, boxing as a topic. And so I talked to my advisor, uh, Arthur Schmidt, 
who was very supportive, but he also said, I like, do you know how to like, if, can you find sources? And one thing I'd grown up, my dad had had tons of boxing magazines growing up and I knew where and just growing up and reading newspapers and things like that. I'm like, I know where to find sports. Like if I need to find stuff in Spanish and stuff like that, I figured out, you know, newspapers, magazines, that sort of thing. And so that was like the initial support I got for the topic. And eventually I turned that, I wrote a thesis, uh, related to that. And then later on, I was able, when I went to Rutgers to uh, work on my PhD under Mark Wasserman, he was very supportive as well. And I was able to expand my project into a dissertation um, on boxing. And along the way, I was helped with a Fulbright grant, which I got actually lots of help from my university um, to write that grant, you know, that uh, winning grant. Um, and that gave me a time between that and university funding. I had two years to be in Mexico City um, to investigate my project. And that allowed me then to pursue the research here. And so on that level, so there's a number of different ways over time it's kind of developed as I realized there was a gap in the historiography. I had a project and then I could, you know, go ahead and pursue it. Um, and I think a lot of it over time, uh, again, like I, it, it's a project I find as I, even as I teach, I can connect with students with, especially my students who are of Mexican and Mexican American backgrounds, but other people as well who are boxing fans. And so I would just generally kind of my quick, uh, wrap of how I got there on the project. Um, I would say just in general, my research involved a lot of going to archives of Mexico City, but also looking at specifically boxing magazines. And Mexico City's National Library had a lot of boxing magazines archived. And so that was a fantastic resource for me. And I used a lot of interviews. Along the way, I also got feedback from a lot of Mexicans in Mexico City. And I went to a group that was a uh, it was retired boxers and boxing fans that meets like the second Sunday of every month for brunch. Um, and so I was able to go to quite a few of those meetings, meet some former boxers, um, also meet people who were boxing fans, and they would talk about their love of boxing. Um, over time, I did a few oral histories, uh, just a few interviews with about four boxers, but that was very helpful as well. But the formal interviews, but also the informal interviews with boxers was very helpful for me to kind of put the project together. Um, the other part I always say is one fun thing is uh, with my project, if I was ever in a taxi in Mexico City and people would ask me, what am I doing here in, the, you know, in Mexico? I would start bringing up my research, which is not something all historians went, want to do right away, is talk <laughs> about the research project. And I had one guy one time actually critique my, in some ways, my methodology, because I wasn't going to do, in my dissertation, I don't have a chapter dedicated to Ruben Olivares, and who's, who I did in my book. And he's like, you have to include him in a, if you're gonna do a history of Mexican boxing, you have to have Ruben Olivares. Like he has to be up there front and center. And so it was a project where I could also get feedback from taxi drivers as well. Um, and so it was a way I could talk to intellectuals, but I could also talk to people who are you know, intellectuals in their own right. Um, and so that was really a good way to connect with people. And that was helpful along the way. And one of my good friends, uh, who's actually, I mentioned in the introduction, or not the introduction, but in the acknowledgements, Alberto Hernandez, uh, gave me a, like, while we're just discussing, he's like, have you heard about the syndrome of the Hamaya Cohen, which was a soccer player that had done not, had done miserably abroad. And it's things like that, where you're talking to people, where you pick up these cultural tropes that you would not necessarily get when you're reading just historiography and things like that. And so that was another thing I think was fun about the project is I could discuss it. It was a conversation starter and I'll leave it there for, for now. Yeah, no, I, I, your introduction was really interesting in the way you were blending um, this kind of almost anthropological approach and throughout your, your book, there's a kind of real, eth almost ethnographic, um, way in which you approach evidence and you're kind of dissecting, uh, Mexican masculinity and it's kind of performative and effective, uh, dimensions. 
But also one of the things I loved about the project was that even though it was so richly embedded in kind of uh, Mexico City and Tepito, it was also kind of transnational. And you're talking about how Mexican identity was formed um, in L.A. as well. Uh, so, I, I mean, I almost don't know where to start in some ways because they're in your when you're just talking, you're making me think of both of these things at the same time. But um, maybe you can talk a little bit, I guess, first about very often when we see these kind of national histories of a sport in a country, it's very kind of like rigidly bounded nationally, but your work's not. And I think in terms of um, in terms of method and for people who are interested in writing uh, sports histories, like that was one of the things I really loved about your work is that it was a national history of something, but it wasn't bounded nationally. And a lot of it took place outside of Mexico, but then so much of it was very local as well. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. I think, and for me, I would say this, when we think about like the, the strength of sports history, I would say as a topic, I think sports history allows us, or actually maybe not allows us, it forces us to acknowledge these like transnational links because so much of sports, I mean, there are certain ones, I mean, even the idea of like sports that are played strictly within the U.S., even now there's much more globalized. You really can't ignore like basketball. You still have, you can't ignore other parts of the world like you could before. Um, you know, I'm thinking cause you're in Australia, Australia has some national sports there that maybe not be played in other places, but these are still, they're still a part of even Australian sports culture, U S sports culture. So much is dependent on international competition with others. Um, and I think with the case of boxing, one of the things too is boxing, even within the U S context, it's the history of it is very much, you know, it's like, if you think like some of like Elliot Gorn's work with like Irish boxers versus English immigrant boxers during the 18, you know, like the mid 19th century or African-American boxers, you know, like, 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 like Jack Johnson versus the great white hope. And there's always this concept of like the other. And I think, um, and with the case of Mexican boxing, it's really hard to understand boxing's impact in Mexico. And, and maybe in some ways I would argue in, in the case of Mexico and Mexican nationalism, boxing has, is more aligned with like ideas of modernity than it is maybe in the U.S. because of this international component and this need for countries that are coming, um, that may be not the economic powers in the world, that this need of like being on the international stage and making a name for yourself on the international stage, it uh, is inherently tied to the sport. Um, it's inherently tied to the debates in the sport. Uh, and for Mexico, one of the biggest debates is, is it great, like, is it better to have boxers come to Mexico or is it better to have your boxers go abroad? And in, in some ways, television kind of helps alleviate this issue because before television, people necessarily can't, if their boxers are going abroad to, for example, Los Angeles, which is the primary source where most boxers are going, um, you know, people in Mexico can't see their favorite boxers. TV kind of alleviates that a bit, and especially with, sat with satellite television in the sixties. But, um, but I think so. I think it's in, in, at the same time, things, uh, I think what boxing does too in its own historiography, which I owe to, is this idea of the importance of the city in migration, but also just cities in general to the development of boxing cultures. And so for that result, I kind of, I do focus a lot on Mexico City and Los Angeles. Um, and I think part of it, you know, it, 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 it became obvious after you read other history, other studies and things like that, which are really tying boxing to neighborhoods and cities. It's really easy for that stuff to kind of, the pattern to arise when you're starting to encounter primary sources. And so I would say, um, and, so, and again, that's why I say, I would say it's, it's for me, sports history. I can't imagine sports history not being transnational because so much of it is just goes across barriers and boundaries. Even, I mean, the biggest example would be like the Olympics or the world cup. So. 
Yeah, well, I think you're right. I mean, the good sports history should should do that, but so so much of it sometimes is um, not not as it doesn't understand these kinds of transnational um, moves. And that was one of the things I really uh, liked about your book. The other thing I've mentioned just before we start getting into some of the meat of it mm-hmm. and talking about our and talking about our our, our boxers um, is the way in which your work really pulls out. Uh, the kind of effectiveness and the emotiveness of of sport, like a lot a lot of sports histories, um, if they if they do touch on it, maybe they touch on kind of the elation of victory or things like that. But but your your book throughout, you get this the the real sense of ordinary people and the experience that they get in in enjoying or suffering with uh, the boxers themselves. So there's always this sense that actually boxing is really about this kind of emotional connection this kind of deep emotional connection and i wondered if uh, if um if that was something you started the project with like you were like oh i actually masculinity is all about emotions and i want to talk about some of these things or if that was something you pulled out of the sources or yeah that's a great question and there's a kind of a funny story with that because i at the beginning of my project i hadn't thought of doing like, you know, really highlighting emotions, maybe just, you know, whatever. I was thinking of ideas of identity, nationalism, masculinity, whatever, but I really hadn't thought about emotion. And I was actually presenting a paper at a conference and someone raised their hand and like, have you engaged much with emotional history? And I had never actually heard much of any, I'm like, and I had one of those moments where I was like totally stumped. And I just remember really good advice a, a senior historian once gave to me was like, the best thing to do as a graduate student is to show that you're willing to listen. <laughs> and so I just like, please tell me what I should be looking up for emotional history. And so I just basically in the, just wrote down stuff. And then so it helped kind of frame things. And then years later, I think an essay by Barbara Keyes wrote, she published one in the Journal of Sports History on the need for uh, emotion and senses in sports. And that really helped me because that came out after my dissertation. And that really helped me for the book to really start to frame it. And I would say, you know, boxing, it's hard sometimes if we speak just strictly in like non-emotional, purely rational sense, there's stuff about boxing that doesn't always make sense on how it could possibly um, engender good feelings or, you know, it's it's violence, it's people, you know, beating up on each other, right? But when you start getting into the emotional aspect and understanding how emotion frames connection, belonging, right? And these things are very important to identity. Um, for It became sports, there's so much of there's so much emotion with sports. And I think in the past, that's why maybe scholars have ignored sports as an idea because it's like almost too emotional. It's not rational enough. And so for me, it was one, it became hearing from people um, and then seeing, you know, it written in, you know, and like Barbara Key's kind of calling more for that. And I was like, okay, I got to, you know, frame this a little better. So that was one that definitely developed over time. And it was not one that came, it was not how I originally imagined the project, but it became an important part of the project. And once I started going back to look for it, I realized how much it was there. I can see given um, given how you, you know, what you've said a little bit about your sources already in terms of like meeting with these boxers and, and boxing fans and, you know, you, that you had an, that you had a kind of avenue and access to that level of emotion that's sometimes difficult to, to get out of the, the other sources. Like if you're reading a boxing newspaper, you might not get some of that. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, one of the things when I was reading it as I was just hit, hitting it again and again, I was like, oh man, you know, Steve's done such a great job of pulling the emotion of sport out of it, which is something I think we could all do more. I, I wanted, I do want to get into the boxers themselves because the stories you tell about, um, the, the, the five different boxers you, 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 you focus on here are just really 
um, fascinating. So I, I wondered if uh, right as we kind of go into that, you could give us, because um, I think some people when they when they read a title like, oh, Mexican masculinity, they just assume, oh, you're talking about machismo, mm-hmm. um, which is actually a term that you don't use as much as many other terms. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how boxing developed uh, in Mexico, what its connections were to the to modernity and the state and to ideas of kind of of um, modern masculinity, quote unquote. Yeah, I think so. What's interesting is, and I think uh, one of the things I would say, maybe like you're like, like your gender, your axe to grind. And I think one of the things I look at and I would, is this idea of, you know, like you said, like that one is there's a tendency a lot of times like for Mexico to view their, you know, like Mexican men or Mexican masculinity as like machismo, where you have like Donald Trump saying, you know, terrible things about them. Um, you know, as they cross the border, right? And so, and so, there's these ideas of Mexico when it, and then there's been some really good work on that um, in the '90s and the 2000s on kind of making it more understand, getting a fuller picture of what Mexican masculinity looks like. And I would also say with the, the case of boxing as well. Um, and so, what's interesting then is, on one level, you have a couple of things. You have a Mexican state in the 20th century that wants to be modern. It wants to impress Europe and the United States specifically, like you know, we call it like the lack of a better term, the Western world. And that's been going on since like the 19th century, but it's a new revolutionary government. And in some ways they're trying to incorporate, you know, they're trying to do a better job, maybe incorporate the working classes in the national image. Um, and one of the things is that, uh, and what happens is there's this deep, and it's this tension though, with if you go, if you become too cosmopolitan or whatever, all the time, you may not be perceived as being authentically Mexican or masculine. Um, and so that's, the nationality and the masculine nationalism and masculinity are heavily tied together. And, and there's this also a problem with Mexico is it's a very, you could say, I mean, definitely class stratified. You can make argument, definitely race stratified. It's just not framed in the same way that is always framed in the United States. There's, it's not as explicit, the racism. So classism is definitely more visible, but you can definitely, there's definitely issues of racism going back to Spanish colonialism. Um, And so what happens is you have this very stratified society and it's often very difficult to kind of bring everything together. And what's interesting here is there's previous arguments about the power of the Mexican government in the 20th century, which was run by one party basically for 71 years, uh, the pre, the institutional revolutionary party. Um, And what happens is they're in power and they're trying to kind of bring everything together that's culturally Mexican. And the previous arguments from a lot of, you know, like, older arguments about the, in the historiography about the culture would have been that, that the pre really runs in like, you know, maybe in some ways generates the, you know, has a lot of control over popular culture in Mexican society. And there's been a lot of work since like the nineties kind of debunking that. Um, and so what happens then is in this need of finding something that's maybe international, authentically Mexican, but also virile. That's also an important part of this national image. Mexico, this isn't necessarily want to look weak and it. Um, Boxers kind of spring out of this to represent this in a way that we may not, you know, in some ways we may not think of in the U.S., but um, at one level they are, you, it's really hard to, den- by normal, heteronormal terms of uh, of masculinity, it's hard to deny boxers aren't manly men, right? That's I think a lot of cultures would buy into that. Um, it's also, they come, most of them are coming from humble backgrounds, either, they're either rural immigrants to cities or the children of rural immigrants to cities, generally speaking, coming from like the urban poor um, on vast majority. And so on one level, they have this authentic Mexican masculinity. But then when you have this international aspect of boxing, that they go to Japan, they go to L.A., they are representing New Mexico abroad and showing Mexican competence abroad. And so I think that's an interesting um, 
it's maybe a little bit different than how in the United States we think of boxers because it's, the U.S. doesn't rely on that image abroad, um, maybe in the same sense, because there aren't the questions about m- the United States legitimacy as a nation, its power in the world. People aren't as concerned about that. And so boxers in some ways become this way to represent that. Um, and I think uh, I think if there's anything else I want to add to that. Um, well, it's, a good, think- it's a good segue into, uh, you know, Rodolfo Casanova. Um, mm-hmm. and kind of how he might symbolize some, some of those things. I, I, I um, I, I, the f- five boxers you picked, I'll, I'll just name them out here real quickly, mm-hmm. uh, are uh, Rodolfo Casanova, Raul Machias. I'm probably mispronouncing some of these because I took French in school. <laughs> Not a Vicente problem. Vicente Saldivar, uh, mm-hmm. Ruben Oliveras, and Jose Napoles. I, I, mm-hmm. My mother-in-law, who grew up in Mexico City, would be embarrassed if she heard my Spanish. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, uh, I I, I want to emphasize you 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 pick these five people, but for people who are picking up the book, actually there are clearly other boxers you could have you could have picked. And mm-hmm. if you're if if you want to get a kind of full picture, this book is a full picture. Um, from from my, my point of view, but I did wonder, you know, how you pick these five and, and if you can shoehorn in like, okay, who Rodolfo Casanova was, because I think in some ways he symbolizes that early moment for you and for me as a reader. I was like, oh, I get it. Now I know what's going on in terms of what the, how, how, how there was that tension between what the government wanted and what ordinary people wanted and how it was a working class sport, but an elite sport kind of all at the same time. Yeah, oh, that's a that's a really good question. Yeah, so I have, um, so I'll go. So, yeah, so, so Casanova is, in some ways, he's like the first. He's not the first. He's maybe in some ways he's definitely the largest Mexican idol of the 1930s. Now, the 1920s, there are some other boxers who are pretty famous, like Baby Aris Mendy, who are very competitive up in California, win championships. Mind, and, and again. Boxing is always tricky with the championship. So sometimes it's considered a world championship, sometimes not. Um, and so I'll get to that later. But um, yeah, Casanova is one who fulfills and, and he's a fascinating figure because there is, um, well, I'll get that. I'll get them. So if Casanova in some ways creates this trope and one of the things he does fill in is this meteoric rise, the narrative of like a boxer rising to the top of the profession and then kind of cratering and falling. And that's a narrative that exists throughout. I mean, we'll hear it in the U.S. as well and also exists in Mexico throughout the 20th century. And it's one where it kind of journalists and stuff, it's a narrative people are waiting for. Um, and one of the things I think I argue with to the book to a degree, this is playing off of some of the work of an anthropologist, Claudio Lomnitz, is in Mexico itself has this flirtation with, you know, maybe national greatness or maybe almost becoming a, you know, for lack of a better term, first world nation in the 20th century. There's this major economic growth going on, particularly from the 1940s to the, from 1940s to 1970. Um, but there's this narrative, there's this flirtation. And so basically Casanova himself kind of symbolizes that flirtation with greatness and then he kind of crashes and falls. And so there's this, there's something about that. That's actually very uh, maybe identifiable, you know, he's symbolic of the nation. Um, Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters, May 17th, do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Quickly, um... Do you want me to go more into Casanova, or do you want me to explain the other boxers? Um, Whatever you want to do, it's it's. I, I think um, I think we could. I mean, if you want to talk uh, just progressively through each one, that that works for me because uh, for for readers and for listeners, there's kind of overlapping themes, like this theme of of of. Um, I don't. At some point in time, I get, I think you refer to it as an inferiority complex. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's. I don't want to put a word in your mouth that you didn't use. Uh, but this kind of reflective, um, this issue of reflective comparison between Mexico and the United States that 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 emerges in many of the of the of the boxing stories, but it's not one that appears in all of them. But it's definitely one that you see in in Casanova, where mm-hmm. it's kind of like this real true underdog story: rise to greatness and then collapse. <laughs> yes, um, I absolutely. So, no, that's a. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you please. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. I think. Um, so yeah, with Casanova, then it's a uh, like. I mean, he basically he, his like twelfth professional fight. He defeats one of the top contenders in the world. It's a meteoric rise, um, and then and then he ends up stumbling. But actually, his career lasts for like six or seven years. But every time he falls, it's like, oh, there it is. See, he didn't train well, and Casanova himself seemed to have some difficulty uh, adjusting to his life of wealth and fame, which I think a lot of people, I think. All of us would have, probably have that issue, but a lot. When it happens, then is Casanova's narrative then becomes useful. One level, like working class Mexicans and things like that enjoy watching him. There's comparisons to him to like Jack Dempsey, and there's one Elliot Gordon has an article on Jack Dempsey about how people like love that he represented like breaking through society's barriers because he was kind of you know he himself wasn't necessarily a polished fighter um, but he kind of just relied on his grit and he got through things and I think Casanova is one of those people who kind of broke through and in a society where there might where there's discrimination against people um, Casanova's one who's like whoa he's doing it right and he kind of did it just on his own as a young guy he's like 19 years old also bec- out of nowhere becomes his, a you know top contender but for elites then, and so that pleasure of watching Casanova come in the ring and at any moment, he, he's one of those fighters at any moment the fight could end because he had he had such power right, as a puncher. And so you never knew what was going to happen in a Casanova fight. In some ways, he might have like a Mike Tyson comparison um, where people get that thrill uh, from a Mike Tyson fight. Um, but for elites, though, Casanova is also useful because when he falls, it's a valuable lesson to, you know, out there for the young boys or the young, you know, young Mexicans that you can't just go out and you know, be 
undisciplined. And the elites are always concerned about the discipline of the working classes because, of course, obviously, we know in a lot of societies, the elites like to blame the working classes' behavior for why they aren't making as much money as they are. Um, and so Casanova becomes this useful trope then of being um, – of, uh, you know – he could see he could have been he could have been something right but he had the wrong mentality and you mentioned you said inferior complex they're not even my words they're the words of a lot of mexican journalists and writers who use that term and this is something that comes up many times that the mexican boxers fail is because they have an inferiority complex mentally they're just not doing it and again this is a blaming of the working class their mentality that they're mentally inferior uh and if they just had a better mentality, you know, they might be more successful in boxing. They also might be more successful in Mexican economic life. Um, and so I think that's something that comes out um, throughout this discourse on Casanova. Uh, and so as a result, then he's just very, he becomes this very po- like powerful figure to kind of, you know, uh, symbolic of Mexican nationalism in a, in a lot of different ways. And so for some people, it's what Mexico could have been. It could, it's lost opportunities. Oh, imagine. And also with Casanova, like, but you know, he could have been the, he could have been the champion. Right. And that itself sometimes is like a, an, in, you know, enjoyable thing to think about. Whereas for the elites, a lot of them, it's like, see, he didn't make it. And that's why, um, and uh, the elites themselves also talk about this inferiority complex. And a lot of times it may, it's more their inferiority complex versus other elites of the world because of mm-hmm. maybe entrenched racism and things like that. And so I think, um, and what happens is, and also just to bring this in here with Casanova's life clearly is fascinating to a lot of people because his move, his life is basically take it copied for a movie called Campeón Sin Corona, which means champion without a crown um, in 1945, which is one of the, like it was a, you know, one, it won awards um, in Mexico and it was like one of the most popular films in Mexico. And it's basically, it's a kid Terra Nova instead of uh, a, Rudolfo Casanova and the names of other boxers are just like removed by one letter. Juan Zorrieta is Juan Zubieta. Like it's just really, <laughs> it's not even done subtly how much is taken away from his life. And so, but that said, he, and then later on he sues to try to get a proceed, you know, try to get uh, earnings from that film. He doesn't get that, but then he starts his own theater show for a while and people go out and they want to see his story. And so the story itself is a fascinating one. And it's one that sets up for the rest of the 20th century, because as soon as a boxer becomes famous and starts to maybe looks like they're partying too much, or maybe they lose a fight and they weren't in the best of shape. They're like, see, Casanova, it happened again. Right. And it's interesting because later on that narrative becomes more problematic. And one of the issues that probably Casanova and some of his other uh, colleagues, like, uh, or contemporaries like Kid Azteca had is they didn't necessarily have the opportunities in the United States that later Mexican fighters will have. And so if they lose in their one chance at a championship, that was basically it for Casanova. He got, he fought for a version of the world championship in Montreal in 1934. And so after that, he never really got another shot. And so there's also other issues that are being ignored here. And that's the actual, maybe the business of boxing, which starts to shift throughout the 20th century. Um, and so I think, and then from Casanova, that we move to another figure who's also charismatic, but in a different ways. Okay, if I go ahead and move to uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I would only okay. mention that I thought Kid Azteca was the best name for a boxer of all time. I was like, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> that is the best boxing name of all time. It really, yes, it, it really is, and it, it, it's a yeah, a fantastic one to to use. And he's one also. Actually, I'll give him his credit. There's a punch in boxing known as the Mexican liver punch, um, which is a hook to the liver, as you say, it's translated from Spanish. And Kid Azteca is credited with popularizing it. Um, And so that's his one of his claim to fame. It's a punch that Bernard Hopkins used on Oscar De La Hoya. Other fighters have used it as well, but people will know there's when people get hit in in the liver in a fight. That one, it becomes very popular in Mexico and Kid Azteca is the one who is credited with that. Um, And so another boxer then it comes into the uh, in the, in the, in the 1950s. So we wait a little bit. 1940s is 
there are some boxers. It's not the golden age. The 30s of like Kid Azteca and Rodolfo Casanova is a golden age of Mexican boxing, the original one. And in the 40s, uh, there's some. It's a little bit down. And what we, but we, what we do start to see though is boxers, more boxers coming up to Los Angeles to fight. And part of it starts with World War II, with a lack of just American young men and in going into the ring. There's a need to bring up people from Mexico, and that starts that continues. And once they realize that the Mexican American population and Mexican population is growing in Los Angeles, that this is a way to make money. And a fighter who takes advantage of this in the fifties is Raúl Raton Macias, who is becomes he is claims half of the. Uh, World Bantamweight Championship in the mid 1950s, and Macias, I, the, the chapter on them, I focus a lot on his neighborhood because he comes from the neighborhood of Tepito, which is the neighborhood that's most famous for producing boxers in Mexico City. Um, they kind of call it like the cradle of champions. Um, it's also infamous for has an infamous reputation as being like crime ridden. It's also home to like the largest um, outdoor market in Latin America, right? All the Americas. Um, and so it's there's a lot of like pirated or knockoff stuff that you can buy in the Tepito market. Um, but it's a huge market. It's like a maze that you walk through um, that gets set up every single day and comes back down. And so Macias, though, represents Tepito. So if you talk to a lot of people within Mexican national imagery, Tepito is like a blight on specifically on Mexico City. Like Tepito is um, seen as backwards and, you know, it's it's just not a, it's crime ridden, infested. It's not a, you know, a home of modern discipline, you know, Mexico that the elites want. Macias himself, though, becomes a symbol of Mexican national uh, imagery and, and actually a symbol of Mexican modernity and it's interesting because he actually embraces his tepito roots and what is interesting is when people talk about when they talk about messi or when they talk about tepito in in, in the media it's on its own it's seen as negative with problems and also when we start to see the coverage of macias and when he goes back to tepito on stuff when he, he like celebrations it seems like things like that the narrative of people of tepito changes and it's an interesting one um that i think in some ways actually reflects how people discuss also mexicans and mexican boxers so people may have you know negative opinions of mexicans and then also you start talking about mexican boxers and all of a sudden they're like oh yeah they're hard working they're tough they're this like all of a sudden all these positive attributes start coming out and the same thing kind of happens with uh, macias and uh in his deputy roots and so one of that article that a chapter i focus a lot on emotional control and so one of the things i i think a, a common way to spin macias is that despite the fact that he came from tepito he became this national symbol. And that chapter I'm really arguing is because he came from Tepito. And one of the things he learned as a kid is, especially besides learning how to fight, because Tepito is a neighborhood where you learn how to fight, you also learn emotional control. And I have that from evidence of you know people showing, like boxing, the importance of not showing that you're hurt, but also seeing that. And I use uh, Oscar Lewis's work, or The Children of Sanchez, um, who are contemporaries. The Sanchez family are contemporaries of Macias. And the two uh, men in that family talk about as boys not, want, not showing weakness and things like that. And the importance of emotional control in their own childhood. And so I use that with, you know, you have the emotional control, you have the physical, you know, emotional discipline, the physical discipline of boxing and training. And, the, and again, it's not just a brawl, despite the fact that you've seen a lot of movies, somebody gets lucky, Casanova maybe fits that a little bit, but you know, he still had to train quite a bit. And so Macias has that physical discipline. And then Macias himself is able 
he actually has a patron who helps him out with his finances and he's able to manage his finances for life. And he's able to, he gets a position within, he has like a, he's a uh, substitute deputy in basically it's the national Congress of Mex of Mexico. It's the chamber of deputies and he has several businesses. And so he is one who's actually a smooth transition from, and he kind of, he really def definitely undermines that narrative of a rise and fall of a boxer because he has this, he's able to successfully transition. And, but the one thing he continues to do as he transitions, as he's successful, he comes back to Tepito in the media. He always praises his neighborhood. And so his Tepitania roots are always um, celebrated in all his, uh, um, you know, in, in his, uh, you know, uh, whenever he discusses that neighborhood and I give, it's not in the book, but I actually had an inner, I was listening to an interview with him at the national phone, national. So it's like an audio archive and it's a radio show from the eighties. And this woman called up and asked him, do you remember me? Like, I think like we went to second grade together and this and that. And his response immediately was, of course I remember you. And he goes into, you know, above the though we had wonderful times. He just goes in and he's just really nice. And it's interesting when you hear someone, cause he had died by the time I got to Mexico you hear someone and how they deal with people. And this kind of goes back to other interviews I've had or interactions with other boxers. When you see someone and you realize and you hear them and their emotional intelligence. And the other thing he just had, it was a very good emotional intelligence in dealing with people. You understand then how he became like a beloved celebrity um, as he's dealing with anyone. He can, you know, he does an excellent job of just handling these different sectors of society that are actually quite device, the, divided. Um, yeah. One of the things that I really liked about this chapter, and it is, again, another through line throughout the book, is the way in which, um, you know, this kind of there's a kind of almost Tapito childhood story among the among the kids who grow up and the boxers who, who come out of Tapito that they had to respond to bullying. And that's how they learned that they were tough or something. So there's a sense that, you know, Tapito is a tough place. And reading your work, I was reminded a little bit. And then I, you referenced even I was like, oh, that was intentional. But, uh, you know, other literature on, on the East End of London and things like that. So I was like, oh, yeah, I really got this sense of place. But then you always are really careful to contextualize that kind of response, that it is kind of emotionally, you know, it's not a wild response. It's always kind of emotionally guarded. You know, mm -hmm. you, you have to respond with violence, but it's appropriate violence. And so... Mm -hmm. That and, and then you tr trace that into that story of modernity as well, like very well, like, oh, and that's how these guys become symbols of modernity because they're because they're able to capture violence and apply it in very particular ways and not allow it to be emotionally clouded. So I, I like throughout, I kind of I could see that through line throughout. And then I was like, oh, this is really this is really working. But it tied together for me like national politics and individual politics, like individual choices and actions. You know, this uh, Macias couldn't become successful if he wasn't able to kind of remain emotionally restrained, mm -hmm. you know, in ways that maybe other others of the boxers weren't able to do. And in fact, like that emotional control and, and, and walking that tightrope is exactly kind of what happens with Vicente Salvida, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, I, can I'm you sorry, tell us a little bit about, no, no, I was going to say, tell us about, about uh, Vicente. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, and it's interesting is, so that's in the 1950s with Macias in the sixties we get, and it, this happens, one of the things that's happening um, uh, in the sixties, we start to see uh, Mexicans getting more opportunities to fight for world championships. And so Macias loses uh, his opportunity to unite the titles in 1957, but by, and I was just, 
quick interlude in 1959, Jose Becerra, who's from Guadalajara, but fights out of Mexico city, um, wins the world champ. He's like the first undisputed Mexican world champion, but he, uh, it, it basically his title reign doesn't last too long. One of the things that happens in one of his follow-up fights, he, someone dies. Um, and so he kind of, after one of his fights, so one of his opponents dies. And so he loses interest in the sport. And so what happens is by 64 though, Vicente Saldivar becomes world featherweight champion, which is 126 pounds. And Saldivar himself, um, a lot of level, in a lot of ways has a lot of similarities with Macias. And actually the two of them are actually tight. They were like, Macias was like a, was definitely had a close relationship with Salibar. And again, Salibar is like, he comes from, uh, it's, it's another humble neighborhood, uh, Colonial Doctores, which is another one that has like a reputation, not quite like Tapitos, but definitely he comes from uh, more humble, humble origins. And he's very disciplined. And like Macias, he's able to, like he doesn't ever f- fall into financial trouble or anything like that. He's able to transition economically in society. Whereas, Mas- and he actually ha- attained, uh, attains much greater uh, success than Macias ever does. It's actually the first satellite broadcast in, in Mexican television history is Macias's fight versus Harold Winstone in, uh, in 1965 from Earl's court in London um, is the first satellite broadcast in Mexican history. So he's world champion for about three years um, before he retires as world champion. And, but during that time, he actually doesn't become, he has, there's some, obviously people go and see his fights and stuff like that, but he is not embraced by the public or by the media, the way that uh, Raton, uh, Raul Macias or Rodolfo Casanova were. And people talk about his coldness and personality that he's not warmth and warm. And one of the things I get into in this time and in this chapter then is again, and this kind of maybe, you know, is again, gets into back to this discussions of like machismo or male power and things like that is one of the things that happens that I see with Mexican celebrities or Mexican male boxers is that they are expected to have like some warmth to them. Um, it's not just about being violent in the ring or, you know, being successful at violence or, or something like that. And one of the things in that chapter, I also go into, I found these boxing vignettes on boxers in the home, um, that celebrated boxers ability to like change their daughter's diapers, comb their daughter's hair, you know, they I, give their I kids love a this pimp. section, by the way, I, lo- I <laughs> loved it. Cause I was like, Oh, these are, this is like the 21st century version <laughs> You know, in some ways, I was like, "This is so postmodern." These guys, <laughs> absolutely, I completely agree. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting uh, thing that happens there. Um, that uh, yeah, they're, they're celebrating like, and I call it, like it's the softer side of masculinity in that regard. Um, and but that somehow that Salivar himself doesn't embrace that either, at least publicly, doesn't seem to embrace that. Um, and he, he himself is actually more interested in showing off his intellectual credentials and things like that. He likes reading. He likes going to like art museums and things like that. When he's, you know, he's, uh, uh, he's being interviewed, he's wearing nice suits. Um, he also has, but one of the things he doesn't seem to have that like, for example, Macias had, and maybe Casanova, a lot of Mexican boxers had, he has a very, uh, they tend to at least publicly espouse their love of Mexico and the Mexican people that they fight for Mexico. And Salivar himself is very honest that he fights for himself. Um, and that he fights, you know, that he's a professional boxer. And I think there's one, I have one quote where he talks to an actor who's from Puerto Rico and he's like, do you act for Puerto Rico? Well, I don't box for Mexico. And it's like things like that, that added to tends to alienate him with the Mexican press um, and with Mexican fans. And uh, one, I think I get into, it's a, this idea of, and this is another anthropologist, Eduardo Arquetti's idea of, we talk about Diego Maradona as the emotional contract of joy. And that fans and athletes have this emotional contract of sharing joy together. And one of the things I kind of just highlight is that Saldivar doesn't seem as interested in making sure that fans enjoy his success with him. Um, whereas like Rato Macias understood 
the that he had to be a public figure. Salivar is much more withdrawn. Um, and I, and especially this starts to change. It was also happening in the 60s and it gets into the next feeds into the next chapter with Ruben Alibari. We're getting in the 60s. We're getting changes in what the ideal Mexican male can be. And in a lot of ways we're getting ex- and and what you're also getting is by the late 60s. And this is I think it's Randy Roberts comes up with this idea talking about Muhammad Ali is that Muhammad Ali grew up watching television. So when he became an athlete, he knew he had some a practice of what it, what he would want to do when he's on TV. Whereas like the athletes of the fifties, where you know it's like Rocky Marciano or Johnny Unitas or whatever, had never they had no idea what to do with television, right? Like they had never imagined how they would be on TV. Um, it just kind of sprung up on them, and so I think you start to see that later. You start to see more personality from boxers, and Sally Bar is one who's trying to hold back his personality, um, and uh, in a way that. And, and so in certain ways, he coalesces perfectly with Mexican modernity, disciplined, successful, um, willing to, you know, meet with the president and things like that, just like Macias did. But people don't have the same kind of love and affection for him, um, again, because he's not willing to share either his success in the ring or his successes emotionally with people. And so I think that's, uh, you know, and then that moves in, that contrasts very much with the next chapter when I get to uh, Ruben Olivares. Yeah, I, I, um, I have to admit in some ways, when I was reading it and when I got to the end, I was a little bit, I mean, I don't know, spoiler alerts on, on Vicente, but he doesn't, he dies relatively young in some ways. And I was like, oh, I yeah. felt so badly for him. So I was like, this is like the, the professor boxer that, you know, the all powerful mathematician. I, I did want to <laughs> see him have, have a better end, but, but Olivares uh, was a lot more fun to read about <laughs> like in some ways. He had a more he had a more rollicking life. So I don't know. There's kind of in that chapter. I, that was I think my favorite chapter. But they're kind of two. You're kind of writing on two on two things. I felt like which was mm-hmm. the kind of um, emergence of Olivares in the in the context of the sexual and emotional revolution. But then mm-hmm. also the kind of geopolitical controversies around boxing that's happening kind of almost at the end of this um, period of growth in Mexico, but also in the context of, of increased competition between uh, the United States and Mexico over who gets to, you know, who speaks for Mexican boxing? Is it George Parnassus or is it anyone else? I, I don't know where you wanted to go with that first. Yeah, sure. I, yeah. What's interesting is, and I think one of the things is I'll, yeah, segue into that because when people think of like the international sanctioning bodies, the WBC, which is the world boxing council is one of the famous ones. Um, and it has a reputation as a um, maybe like sometimes, you know, for being corrupt. And it's based out of Mexico City and for almost its entire existence, except for a couple of years, um, it was based out of the Philippines. But even that was still heavily uh, Mexican controlled. And so the um, and the WBC actually rises out of a concern, partly out of the Mexican government, but Mexican elites about Mexican boxers going up to the United States and being exploited. And this is happening. They're going to the United States more increasingly as the, in the fifties and sixties. And so it's founded in 1963. Um, and so there's these concerns and event initially it's actually kind of a combative organization. It's run by a, a novelist, Luis Spoda. Um, and that's, and he runs it for about four years and eventually it changes hands. And by the late sixties, it's reformatted into an organization that actually works really closely with authorities, specifically in California. And so this new cooperative relationship is happening at the same time, George Parnassus, who you mentioned, um, who has been the main promoter for boxers from Mexico to the United States, 
States, specifically Los Angeles in the 50s and 60s. In 1968, he actually becomes the head promoter of the newly opened forum where the Lakers were, you know, where the Lakers played for many years. And so he starts, it becomes this new heyday, the second golden age, or you could say like the major golden age of Mexican boxing, where from 68 to like 74, I mean, the, the LA explodes, is like the center of world boxing. And so one of the things that happens with Ruben Olivares he himself is growing up in the middle of the sexual revolution, an emotional revolution where things are opening up. Um, and it's not just you can be you know, be or more open about your sexuality, your drug use, but you can also be more open about um, women's rights. I have boxers making discussions on you know women's rights uh, or just if they're going to – and sometimes some more when we talk about like their playboy lifestyle. In general, they just share more about themselves or sometimes just more contemplative discussing things like friendship and what the value of that is. Whereas before this, like the late sixties, early seventies, you're seeing more of just disciplined, undisciplined boxers, right? The Thomas Cias is disciplined. Vicente Saldivar is disciplined. Even if people don't always like him, uh, Casanova is undisciplined, but they never really discuss. And even Casanova himself would never brag about his exploits or anything like that out in, in the media. But that changes with Ruben Olivares in the sixties. And one of the ways is, this is new context, but with this uh, new context, you know, culturally, but also with the economics of the sport and the, uh, you know, this, these new geopolitics, only is there, the boxers are making more money than it, boxers had beforehand and they're getting more opportunities to win world championships. So Rubona Olivares in 1970 is the highest paid athlete in the world. Um, and it's particularly the only person who actually technically Pele t- took home more money because he had like tax breaks from the Brazilian government. But Ruben Olivares, it was $300,000, which puts things in context. Um, it's Pele's number two and then Wilt Chamberlain's number three. And so, and it, it changes the dynamics of the sport. And so, um, and again, in the United States traditionally had been New York as the, the center of boxing in, you know, in, as the center of boxing, but that changed for a number of reasons in the sixties and by the late sixties, it's in Los Angeles and boxers now are getting opportunities, you know, making money like they never did before. And so Olivares then is kind of sex part, sexual revolution, part, uh, new economic dynamics here, but also, and then that leads to also his like kind of consumerist hedonistic lifestyle. And he himself also just has a magnetic personality and he's definitely like, in some, he's the person for the moment in a lot of ways. And he's the biggest draw in LA. The only person to out, draw him in the you know like in the 60s and 70s was uh, Muhammad Ali in his only fight in Los Angeles otherwise Olivares I think had uh, the top 10 most uh, profitable fights in LA in the 70s or the 60s and 70s he had six of the top 10 um and so he is a massive draw um and again and and the one who quote I use the title of the chapter is uh the fact that he's a swinger in and out of the ring and so he's he is non-action he's a uh, lots of action fights going on you know non-action fights, but also at the same time, he and his uh, lifestyle is also, uh, you know, that of a swinger as well, where he has kind of claims he has two wives, but, you know, um, they're very open about his sexual exploits and, and his marijuana use. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, he, he would, he wouldn't have been banned from the Olympics, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> current, current topics. Um, yeah, no, I, I, um, I love the Olivares story, but it becomes a kind of masculinity story too. I mean, in the same way that um, Casanova was a story, people worry about Olivares, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, and with his ex- the interesting thing with Olivares though is 
he's seen as like uh, when he first loses his first title to uh, another Chucho Castillo is another Mexican. It seems like here it is. We told you it was going to happen. He was partying too much. And then he goes back and he beats Castillo. He ends up being world champion a total of four times. And every time he loses a title, they're like, see, we told you he's done just like uh, Casanova was. And Olivares keeps coming back. And then when he comes back and he wins these titles, a lot of there's journalists who are concerned, like what lesson are children going to learn? Um, you know, he's out partying and having a good time yet. He can win the world championship. And so, uh, it, again, and so that messes with, for elites, it's really messing with their narrative of what they want from people or, you know, like maybe from a like control aspect in society. Um, all the audience kind of undermines that, um, in certain ways. Your, your last chapter, and I think will be of in, most interest to some people who are, who are keen to know more about, uh, ideas of race in Mexico. And this is the chapter you have on uh, Jose Napoles. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, Jose Napoles and uh, Mexicanidad. Is that how you pronounce uh, that yes. word? Yes. Yeah, it's a very good pronunciation. Yes. <laughs> You're very generous. Yeah, no, it was. It was, it was spot on. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no. So Napoles is an interesting figure. He's a contemporary in some of Olivares. He also benefits from this boom of boxers in Los Angeles in this 1968, but he's born in Cuba uh, and he's Afro-Cuban. He's, he's a black Cuban and he comes over after the Cuban revolution in, in you know, Cuban revolution happens in 1959 in 1961, Fidel Castro bans uh, professional boxing in Cuba. And obviously Cuba has developed its own excellent amateur boxing program, but the professional boxers then could either, you know, help the boxing program or they could leave. They were allowed to leave the country. And so most boxers went to uh, Miami, the Cuban boxers, but the second most popular place was Mexico City. And so there's another boxer, Ultiminio Sugar Ramos, who also fights out of uh, Mexico City. He's also Afro-Cuban. And he, he's the one actually, Vicente Salivar defeats him for the world championship. But he's a, briefly a world champion. Napoles, though, is world champion from 1969 to 1975 with a brief interlude he loses the title gains it back um and so his is fascinating because um mexican history now so mexico obviously had a there was a strong afro-mexican population so around the independence time it was about 10 percent of the population but over the course of the 19th century um either, either through mixing in some cases just ignoring uh the population starts to not be counted in the kind of, in, in some cases, people intermarry and things like that. And so Mexico over time starts to kind of just underplay its black heritage, its African heritage. Um, this last census is Mexico. Uh, I think it's 2014 was the first census where they actually, you could check off uh, black as a category for your racial category and a million people did so. And so there's, so it is people still in Mexico with very strong black Mexican identities. Um, but Napoles is interesting because he wins the world championship and then people start debating on whether or not he is this a Mexican championship? Um, and so there are people who argue that, yes, it is Mexican because he was like, you know, he came a, he became a boxer here. He lives here. He's adapted to our customs. And Napoles himself was very good at, um, you know, adapting to Mexican customs. And again, we talk about performances, a lot like Macias um, would show him off to be like, he showed himself off to be a good Mexican, being a good Catholic and things like that. Um and so he wouldn't upset, you know, aspects of Mexican society. Other people argue, though, that no, he's not. He's from Cuba. Um, and so he's not Mexican. And it's interesting because Mexico itself is, all, is a country that's 
has a lot of people leaving the country as immigrants, but not necessarily a ton of immigrants coming in. And so that narrative then people, his success spurs people to discuss what they think it means to be Mexican. And in some cases, some people say, is he more Mexican than a Mexican American or is a Mexican American more Mexican than him? And so you'll have people say you are born Mexican and you can't become Mexican. Other people say, yes, you could become, you have to be a citizen of Mexico. Um, And other people even get some very like loose ones of, if you feel Mexican, you're Mexican. Um, And so it comes this notion then of what it be, what it means to be Mexican and what, but one thing that comes up throughout is generally speaking, people don't like he can become black and Mexican, but they don't really associate him with any of Mexico's black past in any way. Um, and so that's kind of disassociated, it, but not place himself is also interesting in the, I mean, he's interesting for many reasons. And one of these, one of the like all time great welterweight champions. Um, and that when he's, there was times where they, do when he's maybe less when he, uh, when he loses or whatever that they blame. There are times where they blame his blackness for this or his predilections and stuff like that. But there's other times where they actually his if he was out, you know, they say he was out drinking too much, chasing women, that sort of thing. And other cases where they say, well, that's kind of typical of Mexican boxers. And so in some cases, they it allows him to become. It allows him his faults or you know his perceived faults allow him to become more Mexican in a way, um, and so in other times he's differentiated. And again, that debate is kind of a it's a it's a complex one um, where and but it definitely reveals in some ways the, the difficulty sometimes of, of incorporating blackness within the Mexican uh, national identity, which overall the you know embraces more definitely European and indigenous um, background there. Um, but one thing I'd yeah. like to add to go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say in, your, in the chapter as well, I mean, you you frame this up against the 68 Olympics and the civil rights movement happening in the United States, as well as kind of at the end of the chapter in this sense of kind of, um, you know, economic decline. So there, there's all these kind of background issues that are also playing into this conversation that mm-hmm. Mexican, um, you know, sports journalists are using to help understand um, Olivares and, and, and Napolis. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I would even say there's this idea because one of the things that Mexico, Mexican government, which it, 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 the 68 Olympics massacres 3000 of its own citizens, um, but at the same time also had beforehand stood up to the IOC and to like other you know like groups and not allowing South Africa to participate in the games because of apartheid. And so Mexico does have this narrative of like where racism doesn't exist. And yet with Nepalese, there's this and, in, and then even that they're a little bit more, they're more flexible with the black power salute, but there is this, um, cause they don't like the Avery Brundage, who's a, a, the, you know, the president of the IOC wants them expelled from Mexico. The Mexican government refuses to expel, uh, to, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And so there's this re- complex relationship that Mexico has with race and not wanting to be racist, um, that plays out here. And then getting towards the yeah end there, this is also happening as a, you know, as the book wraps up the period I'm picking, it starts to change a bit especially in the early 1980s, one thing is for the Mexican government, the Mexican economy starts to collapse. And this is like the state-led develop, you know, state-led development of, you know, kind of Keynesian economics of the 40s through the 70s. This starts to change in the 80s, more towards neoliberalism in the market. And so the government itself then, that the type of revolutionary project along state-led de- development is falling apart. And so boxers no longer represent that. They also are less likely to be train or become from Mexico City. They start coming from other parts of the country. That starts in the 70s, but it really expands in the 80s. And the most popular boxer from Mexico in the 80s and 90s would be Julio Cesar Chavez, who kind of represents that change as well. And he 
associates himself with the government, but he's more in line with this. It's a different type of economic message that comes out there. Yeah, I, I, um, I really want to emphasize again, like the impressive um, amount of different. Like this is this is not a, a, a this is not a hermetically sealed history of of Mexico or, or uh, just a kind of a brief five biographies of, of five uh, interesting boxers. Like this is actually you're gauging um, throughout with some pretty th- um, thorny kind of his, historical issues as well as different methodological issues um, in each chapter. Uh, so I I I, I really was fascinated by it. And I thought it was a good model for writing, writing sports histories outside of a kind of national mode without abandoning the idea that nations actually mattered to some of the people that um, were competing and that we're looking at. Well, thank you. That's very, very nice to say. And I would have to, if anything, if any of the strengths of the book, I would definitely say is coming from, there's been, you know, and I would say this maybe reading interdisciplinarily along the sports History, sports, sports anthropology, they've all been really helpful for me to help, you know, put some of this to make some sense out of, you know, the stuff going on there. But thank you very much. All right, Steve, I always ask the same last question. And that question is, um, what do you what do you have on the burner now? What kind of future projects can we look forward to? Yeah, so right now I've been working on stuff related to the 1968 Olympics. Um, I just had an article published like like two weeks ago on it's actually it was on Irish journalists in the 68 Olympics and, and uh, which ties in Lord Kalanin because he also technically worked as a journalist and then became president of the IOC. Um, and so I'm doing, and again, and, and it's kind of looking at uh, again, like outside perceptions of Mexico and using sports and modernity as a, you know, you know, understanding that the complexities of it, but I'm also doing coming up now, I'm, I'm really working on stuff on, I'm trying to finish up an article on sports science in the 68 Olympics. And there's a lot of work that's been done on, the Mexico City Olympics are an important moment in, in, in the development of sports science, um, but a lot of it's been done from the perspective of like European and U.S. doctors. And so my you know work right now is looking on the perspective of Mexican doctors because all these innovations and things like that are taking place in you know like physically in Mexico, and you have Mexican doctors running things. Um, and so I'm doing something along those lines. Um, and so I'm kind of at that point, I'm, I'm, and I have a couple other things on the 68 Olympics. We'll see if it comes into a book or not, but I think I've. Right now, they're articles. I've just got to, in the future, I'm, I'm comfortable again. It's been about four or five years of going back to Mexican boxing again. And so I'm looking at some different ways of, uh, of analyzing the sport and uh, it, also from international aspects. But we'll see. But I'm just now getting comfortable again, going back to boxing uh, with, with maybe some different ideas than I would have had if I just started producing things five years ago. Well, it's great. We're, we'll be looking for um, looking forward to all that, and I'll have to check out the the recent um, article. I hadn't noticed that yet. Um, so we've been speaking with uh, Stephen Allen. Steve, he's a associate professor of history at California State University Bakersfield, and he is the author of a book I highly recommend. Uh, of course, to people who are interested in boxing, but also I think very broadly for people interested in writing sports histories. Um, that incorporate diverse methodological and theoretical perspectives, especially transnationalism. Um, That book is History of Boxing in Mexico, Masculinity, Modernity, and Nationalism. It's out from uh, University of uh, New Mexico Press in 2017. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Steve. 
Well, thank you for interviewing me. It's been a pleasure and an honor. I love the podcast, so I'm glad to be a part of it. You've been listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Keith Rathbone, uh, coming to you live from lockdown in Sydney. Thank you very much for listening.